I want to invite you to uh, get a copy of God's word, whether it's paper, whether it's your phone, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 7 this morning. Genesis chapter 7, I want to thank you for uh, being here today. If you're a guest with us, I want to encourage you to fill out a connection card that's in your bulletin, and uh, we want to have a record of your visit. And then for each connection card, we're going to donate $10 to a local nonprofit, and that this month is Big Brothers and Big Sisters of Finney and Kearney Counties. And so we want to get a record of your visit. And of course, we're continuing, many of you know, our series uh, through Genesis 1 through 11, Our habit here at Fellowship Baptist is to study through the scriptures verse by verse, through books of the Bible, and uh, we find that that helps us understand God's word the best and takes uh, all of the power uh, and puts it in the hands of God whose word is sufficient to help us each week. And so we want to look at Genesis chapter number seven this morning. I don't know about you, but I think there's been a little bit of a revival of interest in the World War II era, and Albert Einstein, and of course, J. Robert Oppenheimer, because of some recent movies that have come out about that era. And the story is told of Albert Einstein. He was traveling by train, obviously, many years ago from Princeton. And there was a conductor that was coming down the aisle and punching tickets and making sure everyone had paid their fare. And when he reached Albert Einstein's chair, Albert Einstein checked his coat pockets, and then he checked his trouser pockets, and he didn't find any ticket there, so he looked in his briefcase, and he couldn't find his ticket there, and so he's kind of rushing around trying to find his ticket. He's looking in the seat next to him, and the conductor just says, listen, Mr. Einstein, please don't worry about it. We know who you are. I know who you are. The train knows who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Just don't worry about it. So he goes on and goes a couple rows down, and then as he's punching his tickets further down the train, he looks back and he sees Albert Einstein on his hands and knees crawling around the floor of the train under a seat looking for his ticket and feeling kind of embarrassed that this, you know, famous person is, you know, crawling around on the floor of the train. He runs back to him and says, Mr. Einstein, I told you, it's it's fine. Don't worry about it. We know who you are. To which Albert Einstein says to the conductor, Young man, I know who I am. I don't know where I'm going. Now, I was on a train two weeks ago. It's a problem if you don't know where you're going. There was a guy on the train prior to me who slept through his stop and missed it by three hours on the Amtrak train. It's a big deal if you don't know where you're going on a train. But it's a much bigger problem if somebody doesn't know where they're going when they die. And in our sermon today, I want to show you from Genesis 7 how God shows us that we can enter into God's salvation. How we can enter into God's salvation. I have two really simple goals this morning. Number one, for those of you who may not know, I want you to know where you're going and to be assured of where you're going when you die. There's no bigger question that we can answer in this life. Am I right about that? That is the most important thing we ought to settle. Where are we going when we die? 
You might be here this morning, you say, well, I, I know where I'm going. I'm going to heaven. I could quote all the scriptures. You're going to quote to us, Pastor Mike. I know it all. Well, if that's you, I think as we study through Genesis 7, you're going to see that where you're going should affect how you live. That the gospel is not just a message for those who haven't heard it for the first time. The gospel gives us as Christians a pattern of life that we are supposed to replicate in our daily lives. Chapter seven describes how Noah, who we've talked about the last few weeks, in this very uh, sinful world that was condemned to God's judgment, it describes how Noah entered into God's salvation when the judgment that God was going to bring was certain. And what we're gonna see in chapter seven and what we're gonna focus the sermon around this morning is four truths about entering God's salvation that I think you'll find are just as relevant for you today as they were for Noah in the story that's recorded here. I want us to read some of this account. We won't read the whole thing, but I want, to, I want you to get a taste of the whole thing before we dive into the individual parts. In Genesis 7, we'll begin our reading in verse number 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Describes more of the animals in verse number three and then verse number four. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And verse number five sticks out. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. And then I want you to read in verses 21 through 24. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth a 150 days and the hinge point of all this story is chapter 8, verse 1, when it says, and God remembered Noah. Four truths about entering God's salvation. I hope this morning you're willing to dig a little bit deeper because we're going to have to connect some things that may not seem obvious to you, but I think we'll do justice to God's word this morning. Here's the first one. 
If you wanna enter God's salvation, we must enter his salvation through his chosen sanctuary. As you read the account, the ark stands out. Over and over and over again, it says the ark. Verse one, come into the ark. Verse seven, Noah and his family went into the ark. Verse 13, the family entered the ark. Verse 15, the animals went into the ark. Verse 18, the ark floated on the face of the waters. Why is this so important to Moses as he's writing this story? Well, we know from previous messages that the ark, to build that was an act of faith in God by Noah. But why is Moses focusing so much on a boat when the people he was writing to were not in danger of a worldwide flood and did not need to build a boat? That's a good question we should ask. Because Moses is writing this story for the benefit of a very specific audience, the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, waiting to go into the promised land. So bear with me for a minute, but I want to help you see something that maybe you haven't seen before. The key to understanding the ark is to understand that the ark of God in Genesis 7 represents the sanctuary of the tabernacle that God would tell Moses to build in the book of Exodus. And it would be in that tabernacle that God would save his people through the sacrifices they would offer to him. It would be in that tabernacle that God would make his presence known unto his people. Now, I'm not just making this up, okay? We understand that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and he delivered them to the children of Israel as a package. I don't know what you call five books. I know three is called a trilogy. You can Google it and let me know later. But Moses is giving these five books at the same time to his people. And so he's making a point here that's going to be discovered later on about the tabernacle. And there's several clues in the account that tell us that Moses is trying to make a statement about the tabernacle. We know, first of all, that it would be the tabernacle that would bring, uh, uh, it would be the vehicle of salvation for God's people. Then also, you've probably noticed throughout the story that there's these these accounts that are framed by the commands of God in the response of Noah's obedience, right? And throughout the whole story of Noah, it's not by accident that 10 times God speaks and Noah obeys. Where else does that show up in the Bible? It shows up in the creation account and in the building of the tabernacle. And what we read, I think in verse number six, where it says, Noah obeyed all that God commanded him is also repeated when Moses finished building the tabernacle in Exodus 40. And then strangely enough, before the law of God is written about clean and unclean animals, in Genesis seven, it's talking about clean and unclean animals, which is strange because that doesn't happen for another book and a half of the Old Testament. Well, why on earth would God care about Noah bringing these clean animals and more of them into the ark. Well, clearly, we'll see later, Noah is going to eat the clean animals, right? And Noah was going to sacrifice the clean animals. We see that at the end of chapter number eight. And then there's other stuff, which will bore you, but dates and timelines and things like that and measurements of the tabernacle and of the ark that correspond together. And so what is Moses trying to say? Bear with me, but Moses is trying to tell his people that the same way that Noah entered the ark and was saved from the floodwaters of God's judgment, 
He's communicating to his people in his day that if you do not worship in the sanctuary and offer sacrifices of these clean animals in the sanctuary, you too will face God's judgment. Well, praise God, I'm glad that we don't offer animal sacrifices here at Fellowship Baptist Church. I hate blood. I really don't like being around animals that much. So I'm really glad. I wouldn't be a pastor if that was part of my job. But why is the tabernacle and the ark significant to us as Christians? Well, the tabernacle was the place where heaven and earth met, where God dwelt among his people. And we know that the same thing happened through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Heaven came down to earth and God brought a better sanctuary, a better sacrifice that would bring a better and more eternal salvation to God's people. We see another picture of Christ in Genesis 7 when we see that the second truth about entering God's salvation is that we must enter God's salvation through the floodwaters of death. Now I read to you in verses 17 through 24 it kind of emphasizes the judgment and the, the, the destruction that came upon the earth that was in sin before God, right? We, we read about it in verses um, 21 through 23. And if you noticed, what is carefully written into this account is a, is a sense of God reversing his creation, right? So God made his creation. He started out with the birds and the fish and then the land animals, And then it says in verse 22, I think it is, that God destroyed the land, animals, the birds, and the fish. And so God is bringing his judgment and his death upon all who deserved it because of their sin. And then in verse 11, it shows us how the waters that God brought together to form the dry land in chapter 1, verse 9, God is now bringing those waters uh, and unleashing them upon the earth that he created. And then verse 22 kind of summarizes it. Look at verse 22 all in whose nostrils was the breath of life and of all that was in the dry land died. But amidst all this description of death and destruction, the floodwaters that caused death to those who were not in the sanctuary were the same waters that allowed the ark to float to safety. Look at verse 18. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that Noah's hope was that this ark, this boat, could safely navigate the floodwaters of death. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is that vessel that safely navigated death for us. Listen to 1 Peter 3, verse 18 through 22. It says, For Christ also hath once suffered or died for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. And then it starts going back and reflecting on the Noah story, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. And then here's, he compares the two. The like figure 
whereunto baptism doth also now save us, and I'll explain this in a minute, but skip past the parentheses and go to the next part, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? I told you we're gonna dive a little deep. It doesn't always happen, but we're gonna do that this week. What, it, what is this saying? That these floodwaters of death that could have caused Noah to die were the same floodwaters that floated this ark and allowed Noah to safely be alive on the other side of the flood. And what Peter is making a point about in 1 Peter 3 is that in the same way Jesus Christ died, he went through the floodwaters of death for us. He died for our sins. He was crucified as a perfect sacrifice to take our sins upon himself. But because Jesus was not conquered by the floodwaters of death, but resurrected, you and I can have the hope of eternal life. How do we enter God's salvation? How do we know where we're going when we die? Well, the only way we can have hope of life after death is by clinging on to the one who navigated death in front of us. He is that vessel. He is the means of our salvation. Jesus Christ and your faith in him is the only way we can escape the judgment of death. Now you might say, well, I've, I've already believed in Christ. I've got that settled, Pastor Mike. Well, then what do we gain from this? Well, can you imagine what it felt like for Noah to step out of that boat like he will next week in our sermon on Genesis 8? Quite literally, the old life was gone, right? I mean, everything was gone. It was completely wiped away. It really is a figure of baptism like Peter's talking about because doesn't our baptism remind us of this? I don't know if when you were baptized, the preacher said this, but this is how I was taught. That when you dunk someone in the water, what do you say? Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. But does it stop there? To walk in newness of life. Christian, when we read this story about Noah navigating the floodwaters of death, and as Peter connects that to our baptism, we ought to remember that God has died in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, so that you and I too can die to our old sinful past. That just like the world was recreated and there was a new life granted to Noah, God desires for you and me to live a life that does not reflect the old, but reflects a new life that is made holy by the work of Jesus Christ. Peter says this in just a few verses later in chapter four, verse one, when he says, as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Jesus died, you ought to die to your sin too. I love what Paul says. It's pretty simple. You want to meditate and reflect on a verse this week? Reflect on when Paul says, I die daily. I think all of us would be better Christians if we woke up each morning with a, with a resolution to die to our old self to put that old self to death as the scripture teaches us. But the third thing our passage teaches us is that ultimately, though we must die to ourselves, our salvation is secured 
by God himself. It was not Noah who made a good enough boat to travel through the waters that gets the credit for saving his family. No, the passage is very clear that it was only by the work of God that Noah and his family made it safely through the floodwaters of death. Now just put yourself in the shoes of the story. I mean, imagine if I came to you today and said, God has pronounced a worldwide fire on our earth. But take hope, Fellowship Baptist Church, for this week and the coming months, I will be building the best plane I could possibly build. And if you will enter into the plane that I've constructed, you too will be saved. I don't know about you, I think all of you would be Googling fire shelters and you would choose not to enter my build unless I had Sid Hodge maybe on board as a construction partner. And then maybe some of you would be on board because he actually fixes planes every day of his life. Can you imagine what it would have felt like when the entire world is falling to pieces literally to enter into a boat by a guy who I assume was an amateur boat builder? I mean, he wasn't an expert you know, sailor, but here he is building this huge box that's meant to save the life of his family and he does his best and it's a huge, huge boat, which is why it takes a long, long time for him to build and all of his resources and all of his time and somehow he has to get his family on board with the whole idea because there's no way this guy could have done it himself. And they enter into that boat. I don't know about you, but I think, though on a human level, Noah had every reason to be afraid. I don't think Noah was too worried because I think in some sense, Noah knew what verse 16 says. And they went in, male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Ultimately, it wasn't Noah who saved himself It was the act of God that saved Noah and his family and got them through the flood. I love what old preacher Charles Spurgeon said in the 1800s. He said, the deed was done and could not be undone. The bolt was turned and could not be withdrawn. Noah was shut in by a hand that is not given to undo its own work. Hey, you know what you can rest in this morning? If you have entered into God's salvation, that God is not somebody who is given over to undoing his own work. If God saves, he also secures. And this is emphasized again by verse number one of chapter eight, because chapter eight, verse number one, shows us that the tide literally turns and pivots on the basis of God remembering Noah. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the the flood account is parallel. So there's 40 days and seven days and 150 days. And then it says, God remembered Noah. And then the floodwaters recede in the same reverse order. And so what God is showing us in chapter eight, verse number one, is that it all hinged on God's relationship with Noah. Then the same way God remembered Noah and his relationship with him and that delivered Noah from judgment is the same way that through a relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, God secures our salvation. Listen, I, I believe that our works assure us of our salvation. Our works, our righteousness, a new life of righteousness is the external evidence of an internal faith. James said, without 
faith without works is dead. But don't be mistaken that though our works may assure us of our salvation, they do not secure it. You can rest and have peace because the only thing that ultimately saves you and me is the hand of God in the grace of Christ. That's why we believe salvation is eternal. You don't have to worry about losing it when you go out and mess up this week, because guess what? Hate to break it to you, but you will. It's not your actions that secure your salvation. It is the grace of God who has shut you in and has secured your salvation. I love how Peter describes it. He says, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. I love what Spurgeon goes on to say. He has a good way with words sometimes. He said, never has a soul perished trusting in Jesus and never shall a soul so perish. When the Lord puts his hand to the work, it is well done and done forever. All of the leaks and openings of our fall and our sin are closed by the grace of God. Praise God for that. I got some leaky faith sometimes. You have leaky faith? Hey, the Lord is the one who secures your salvation. He has paid the ticket that sometimes our lives look like we can't find it. But praise God, he is the one who paid the price. And so this week, just rest. If you have trusted in Christ, if you're believing in his sacrifice for your salvation, just rest knowing that the deed is done, the Lord has kept you safe. So one more question, our passage answers. And it's not how we enter God's salvation, but it answers the question of who. Who's gonna be saved? And the answer is this, only those whom we influence to faith will enter God's salvation. What's interesting to me is that if you read the story and you read the New Testament writers who quote or reflect on Noah, that Moses, the writer of this passage, and the New Testament authors almost always seem to reference the eight people who are saved, the few people who are saved. In our passage, the family of Noah is mentioned multiple times. Verse seven, verse 13, chapter eight, verse 15. All of those reiterate the point that it was only eight people who were saved that day who entered the ark and were Noah and his family. Now here's the question we have to ask. Is, did God save Noah's kids based on Noah's faith? Or did they have their own faith? Well, if you read Genesis 19, the story of Lot, which has a lot of similarities, you'll find another story of a righteous man who had plenty of his family who didn't come along for the ride of salvation with him. Lot, when he escaped judgment, was only accompanied by his two daughters, not his wife and not his sons-in-law. And so that leads me to believe that here are these, this wife of Noah, his three sons and their three wives, that in their own way, in their own time, somehow, apparently in 100 years, believed in the God of Noah and trusted in the ark for salvation. 
Now, I don't know about you. It, I thought this week, you know, I, sometimes I go to a, a conference. I go to, try to go to one conference a year for pastors. I thought, you know, I don't think Noah would be headlining any pastor's conferences in the near future, you know? Can you imagine a bio, you know, here's a wonderful preacher. He has not led a single person to Jesus Christ, but his three kids and his wife and their, son, and their daughters-in-law. Now, this guy wouldn't have been a headliner in anyone's book. He didn't have a bunch of people turn to faith in God. The Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness. So I don't know exactly how all that worked out. I don't know exactly in what way he communicated his message, but he tried to bring other people along for the ride with him, and the boat probably was big enough to fit a lot more people on that thing. But let's not be too hard on Noah, because at least his family was saved along with him. And I think what we have to be challenged about in this passage, church, is that God has chosen to use human influence to lead people to salvation. That's God's plan. It's been that way since the days of Noah. The only people who got on that boat were people Noah had preached to and who then received that message for themselves. And so I wanna ask you the question this morning. For those who have kids and grandkids and a spouse and cousins and grandparents, is your family coming on the ark with you? Does your family know the message of salvation that is being preached this morning? Are you doing everything in your power to make sure your siblings and your kids and your grandkids know Christ for themselves? I suppose Noah was sad that no one else came on the boat other than his family. But I bet you Noah would have agreed with what I heard one pastor say. He said, true success is when those who know you the best respect your faith the most. That says something about Noah, doesn't it? Because when Lot later on in Genesis, tries to bring his family out and say, God's judgment is coming. You have to come with me. What do his sons-in-laws do? They laugh at him. Which tells me that there was something in his life that didn't match up with the message he preached. Noah, I think, preached a message and lived a message. He preached a message and he prayed for his kids to receive that message. Friends, Listen, if we lead the whole world to Christ, but not our own kids, not our own family, that day will be bittersweet, no matter how many come with us. Now listen, I understand. I grew up in a Christian home, and I'm the only child of my family who professes Christ and goes to church. I understand, parents, that to a degree, you can't, you can't control whether your kids receive Christ. It's a decision they have to make for themselves. Your spouse, your, your grandkids, your aunt, your uncle, you can't make anybody receive Christ. You're not accountable if they reject Christ, but listen, you're accountable if you don't preach Christ 
And I'm just gonna look inward at my own heart. I'll be honest with you. I don't do this good enough. I don't do it good enough. Anyone else on that boat with me? I'm not as intentionally focused on this as I can be, and I would imagine there are some of you in here who aren't as intentionally focused on this as you can be. We got several young families in our church, some working downstairs, nursery, out of town, whatever. We got families with grandkids, families with other adult kids, things like that. I think all of us can do something with this message. All of us have a sibling or a parent or somebody who doesn't know Christ. And I just want to ask you, are you doing everything you can to make sure that they know the gospel of Christ and they have received it for themselves? I I think that all of us can take something away here this morning. I just thought about this on, on top of what I wrote down but it's the three P's of influencing people for the gospel. I think it's these three where we fall short. The first one's prayer. It's prayer. It's my experience that a lot of Christians live the Christian life, but they rarely pray for others to receive the Christian life. That on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday and a Friday, Most of us are not diligent about praying for the salvation of our lost family, let alone other people who don't know Christ. Man, I wanna encourage you this morning, if you walk out of here with anything, pray. Because when you start praying, God will provoke you to start living what you preach. When you start praying, if you're really praying and asking God to save somebody who needs the message of salvation, you can't pray that day in and day out and not say something about the gospel. You ain't really praying if, you're, if that's the case. It's prayer. Man, more of us ought to pray. If we have lost kids, lost family members, we ought to pray and beg God on our knees because here's what I know. I don't know how it all works out. I don't think there's some magic formula in heaven, but here's what I know. God responds to fervent prayer. He does. Are there some seasoned saints in here that believe that truth this morning? Let it be known. God responds to fervent prayer. Have you seen that? Yeah? (laughs) All right. It's not a rhetorical question. I know you may have thought that. Prayer. Second P, a pattern. A pattern. I think... Noah's kids received his faith because Noah lived his faith. I mean, apparently he was building a massive gargantuan boat for a hundred years. I think he lived it. And here's what I know. Kids are not impressed with their parents' actions on Sunday. Kids are not most influenced by their parents' actions on Sunday and Wednesday. Kids are influenced by who their parents are Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Your pattern has to be consistent seven days a week, not one day a week. And I think all of us, if we're trying to lead others to Christ, I think all of us could stand to improve the pattern that we're leaving behind, the example that we're leaving behind. Because listen, I think we all know this. If you preach a gospel of grace and you are a parent of anger and frustration and bitterness, your message will fall on deaf ears. We need a pattern. But we also need the third P. We gotta preach. 
You say, well, I'm not a preacher. Well, I know you're not. I know. That, I'm just trying to have a term that has a P at the beginning, okay? We have to share the message. I don't think people receive the gospel unless someone tells them the gospel. Parents, when you're disciplining your children and you're dealing with their sin and giving them consequences, try pointing them to the grace of God along with it. But yet I think it's so easy as a parent, I found this, to fall into a sort of moralism of parenting where it's do good things, don't do bad things, and Jesus is never in the picture. And what kind of message are we communicating when we tell our kids that they can live a good life without Jesus? We have to preach. If you have people that you work with or you have family that you're gonna visit this holiday season and you never open your mouth and say something about the gospel, I could promise you they probably won't receive the gospel. If you have people you work with that you have spent 10 years with in an office and you never speak the gospel, don't be surprised on the day of judgment when they have never received the gospel. Friends, I know it's difficult. I know it's scary. But we have to open our mouth and share the message we claim to believe. We have to. Because only those whom we influence will enter God's salvation. I want to ask you this morning, who else is coming on the ark because of your influence? Who else is coming on the ark because of your influence? Or how are you doing leading your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors to Christ? Can I remind you, you've only got one life to do it. And your life is shorter every week. If you're 70 or if you're 30, your life gets shorter every week. We're running out of time. Preach the message because the day will come when the waters of judgment come. When Jesus Christ returns, it will be too late. Not just for them, it'll be too late for you. It'll be too late. Because notice this, God shut the doors before the water came. So on the day, it'll be too late. Friends, I know, I know we all could do better at this. What do we know? We know that those who enter God's chosen sanctuary, Jesus Christ, will be saved on the day of judgment. And that is why if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus, you must believe in him and repent. You must believe in him and repent. Only the one who's navigated death can be the one who can save you from death yourself. But we must also preach Christ. Hey, maybe for just a few moments, as my wife comes, I just want us to reflect on the message for just a few moments. Maybe you haven't prayed for that person who needs Christ for months. Why don't you pray for him right now? Start your prayer time right now. Pray today, but wake up tomorrow and pray again. And then pray the next day and the next day and have a life that lives a pattern of faith in Christ. And then, and then God will give you the opportunity. God will give you the words. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He says, don't worry about the words. My spirit will give you the words on the day you need it. 
And the day will come when you're having dinner with them or tragedy has struck or burdens are weighing on them that you'll get to speak your faith. Don't hold back. Don't shy away. Because you may be the way God plans to tell them about salvation and get them on the ark. Oh, church family, let us pray that we will be better at preaching Christ. Let's spend some time praying this morning.